Good morning, everybody. Well, good morning, Ken, I even got as well. Thank you for that as well. Yeah, I'm Ken, for those of you who are visiting. I'm Ken, for those of you who are not visiting as well. I don't know how I come to think of it. Uh, that is my name. And it's great to be with you sharing um, some thoughts around this theme. I, I guess I'm here for a reason today, which is to explain to you all, remind you if you need reminding, encourage you if you've not thought about it, that you're here for a reason today, but you're also here for a reason if you picture where you will be tomorrow, at home, at work, in your neighbourhood, uh, with your friends, in your social context, wherever you will find yourself there, you're, you're there for a reason too. And I'm going to use some well-known words from Esther to give us a context for that. So Esther 4 and from verse 12 says this, when Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer, do not think that because you're in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will, will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews and all who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. It's great to share some thoughts with you at the start of autumn, one of the young people said what, what was starting there right is kind of meteorologically, it's the start of autumn. So, so well, well done them. And uh, still feels a bit summery. If you're feeling a bit hot, we've got water stations. If you're feeling cold, you can shut the doors. But if you're feeling hot, we've got water stations there. And at the back, feel free. We won't be offended. I won't be offended if you get a cup of water at some point in the sermon and gently flick some of that water on the person next to you because they're falling asleep, that'll all be fine if you feel that that's the right thing to do. It's also a timely message, I think. It's timely because um, we have a, a, a ballet theatre company with us who are looking at the theme of Esther. Do stand up for us. Welcome these guys. Um, we know Karis. This is the Dramatic Truth Ballet Theatre Company. Great to have you with us. And there performing on the 13th of September at the university um, around this theme for such a time as this. There's a, um, some information on the notice board. Do check that out. It's also timely because in terms of where we're at in our national and international history, uh, Esther is a reminder that God oversees all things. He works with and over the rulers and authorities at any given time. And alongside that, he uses key people at key times. It's a reminder to pray about world situations too. You see all of that in Esther. In fact, let's pause and pray just briefly. So Sovereign Lord, looking at what we see in our news, what's going on in our politics, in our nation and in relation to our neighboring nations, we pray for you and for your kingdom to come to our broken world. In this time of political turmoil, we especially intercede for our nation, asking not for a quick fix, but for deep reconciliation and for peace, and for peace that can only be given by you. 
And we pray for those in power over us that they would use their authority to serve with compassion, to seek consensus and to find common good. In your mercy, hear our prayer. Amen. Having said that Esther is good and helpful and timely for a couple of reasons, Esther is also a funny old book. It's quite a tricky book to get a handle on. I remember misunderstanding it as a teenager, or even a little bit younger than that. It was my first attempt, I was a believer, it was my first attempt to read through the Bible. And I decided I would read through from Genesis all the way through, and I was just having a go at it. So, you know, you make your way through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and so on. And, you know, you make your way through Chronicles, and it's, I found it quite hard work. And then you get to, at a certain point, the book of Esther. And I remember misunderstanding something, but it made perfect sense to me. A little bit after this passage, there's a passage in the book of Esther that says, the king couldn't sleep, so he asked for the book of Chronicles to be read to him. (laughs) And that made sense to me, I have to tell you. (laughs) Now, I've now learnt, since learnt, that what the king, this isn't a king of Israel, this is a king of Persia. Chronicles just means the accounts of the kings. He was asking for the accounts of his kings to be read to him, not the book of Chronicles that we have, which I've since learned to appreciate, you understand. But at the time, that made some sense to me. Um, if I found it tricky to get a handle on Esther, I'm in good company. It's not always been something that has been understood. If you look back in church history, the early Christian leaders wrote some commentaries on the Old Testament. Esther was pretty much the last book that they went to. If you think of some of the uh, founding figures of Christian history, some of them really didn't like the book of Esther. Some of them openly didn't like it and would have preferred it not to be in the Bible. The Jewish people, however, have never had this problem. Uh, They reread this story every year as one of their five major Jewish festivals, the festival of Purim. Uh, when they remember God's rescue of, God, of God's people against threat of annihilation and how God is in control over and above powers and authorities and governments and nations at any one time. Esther is one of only two books in the Bible named after a woman and it's one of only two books in the Bible that don't specifically name God in the whole book. The other book is Song of Songs. And even in Song of Songs, there's one bit of one phrase that might be half saying Yahweh. So this might be the only book in the Bible that doesn't specifically name God. We're talking about a time when God's people have been exiled and now they're allowed back into their own land, but some of them did not return. And Esther and Mordecai were among those who stayed in Persia. But... Really, I think, to get a handle on it in terms of navigating our way through this here-for-a-reason, learning-from-Esther-type theme, you can think of Esther as easily navigatable if you think of feasts, fasts, and laws. Those things appear at key points throughout the whole book. It starts with the king and queen of Persia having feasts or banquets. When bad news comes to all God's people... Before our reading, there's fasting along with mourning. When Esther is convinced that she must do something, this, is, this was in our reading in verse 15, there is fasting along with praying. 
In the next bit, when she goes for a rescue plan, it's focused around a feast. Then at the end, when the rescue is, is fulfilled, there is the instruction to remember it annually with a feast. And remember when their sorrow was turned to joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. And there's an instruction for God's people, the Jewish people, to observe this day and, uh, of rescue forever with feasting and joy and giving presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor as well as part of that feast. And laws appears as the word edict in the book of Esther. The, the word edict appears 18 times in the whole Bible it appears just once in the New Testament, so 17 times in the Old Testament, and 14 of those are in the nine chapters of Esther. So it's very much one of those themes of Esther all the way through. There's an edict to proclaim throughout his vast kingdom from the king that all the women were to respect their husbands at the beginning. There's an edict that proclaimed that um, young women were to be brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. And Esther was taken um, to the king's palace as part of that. There's an edict threatening the life of all Jewish people everywhere. Then there's an edict at the end granting the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves. And there's an edict against the enemies of God's people. By the time we join the story at these verses, we're on the brink of a planned genocide. Uh, Haman the king's high-ranking advisor, is disproportionately enraged against a Jewish man living in the capital city called Mordecai. Uh, the anger is so off the charts that Haman is trying to wipe out the entire Jewish race. The one person who is in a position to do anything about this and talk personally with some influence about her people with the king is Esther. Esther was orphaned, and then was brought up by our uncle, Mordecai. If you go back to the beginning of the book, you get the backstory for that. Basically, Esther must have been beautiful, um, and because of that, she was forced to become a replacement for the king's harem. The king had been embarrassed by his previous wife, Vashti. Uh, they were both holding these banquets, like I say. It all starts with feasts and banquets, and she refused to be summoned to just be paraded in front of everyone at the king's banquet just to be gawped at. Anyway, the male advisors advised the king to get rid of her and hold a, basically a beauty contest to find their replacement. Esther wins this contest, and Esther, as we've said, is Mordecai's niece, but he's basically, he's been the parent to her. She's his adopted daughter in that sense. And there's obviously already, even at the start of this story, some low-level negativity towards the Jewish people at least, because Mordecai advises her not to say that she is Jewish. What she's saying at the start of our reading is that she might be the only Jewish person in the palace in a position to talk to the king, but that's not the way things work around here. The king hasn't called for her. And so simply to turn up uninvited, even as queen, could result in her death, unless he happens to greet her with favor when she turns up. And so she would rather remain silent, thank you very much, and not risk her life. And Mordecai replies, do not think that because you're in the king's house, you alone of all the Jewish people will escape. 
For if he remains silent at this time, relief and deliverance from the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. That last phrase is key for me, for such a time as this. Hence the theatre company's title, and hence my title, Here for a Reason, you see. I think here for a reason is kind of the non-spiritual version of it. You might hear people you know who are not believers just express the view that I was in this situation, I just had this sense that I I was here for a reason. It's the kind of language we use today. If you unpack that, there's actually a bit of belief there in something that is worth exploring with your friends, I think. But nevertheless, people might well say that they are here for a reason. The Esther version of that is for such a time as this. It's the last part of verse 14. And verse 14 is the most famous verse in the whole book. There's no reason you you should have heard of it. At any one stage in our church, in our morning services like this, we've got people who are exploring faith, people of no faith, people who are new to it all, and people who know it really, really well. You're all welcome, uh, by the way. And we're trying to make what we do as accessible as possible to all, hence me giving all of the context which uh, I did at the beginning and which some of you know. People quote this phrase, you see, uh, quite often, uh, for such a time as this. It's one, I think, of the more appropriate verses people just pluck out of context and just send to people on cards and in, in messages. It's not wildly out of context when people do that. But my point today is that when you look at the verses around it, when you look at the whole story, it is more detailed, that phrase, not less detailed, than you and I or Esther just saying, well, we're here for such a time as this. When you take it out of the story, the meaning is not a million miles away, but it misses some of the details. And those details add value to us rather than take away detail. When you put it back in the story, it's more relevant for us. That's what I want to show you. So the phrase, you have come to royal position for such a time as this, it sounds beautiful and idyllic, you see. But the reality is messy and flawed. We can tell this as a beautiful kid's story, but the book really is full of sexual exploitation. It's full of personal vendettas and a threat of anti-Semitic ethnic cleansing. Esther was one of the first books I preached on as a teenager, and I remember doing that in my teenage years and 20s. And I used to make a joke of the story along the lines that the last queen is deposed, the king sets up this beauty contest, and Esther wins the beauty contest, which is no surprise to me because she's a Benjamin. And we're a pretty good-looking bunch, I used to say, at that point. But I'm not from the tribe of Benjamin. And the reason Esther is in this position isn't that funny. It comes from men mistreating women. It comes from them judging them on their looks and not wanting women to exercise independence. On top of that, Esther is only in this foreign land under the rule of another nation because of the sins of God's people over generations. Some have been allowed back into their homelands, but some have not taken or not been able to take that option. All of this means, here for a reason, this phrase, or for such a time as this, it doesn't mean it's all lovely. It means it's in the mess, in the sin-filled context, 
even in the place you might choose not to be, you could still be here for a reason. In a messy, unwanted, unfair situation, there is a best way forward that God has for you. In a situation of occupation, uh, from a foreign land, and oppression, objectification, multiple wives, lack of equality and lies, Esther is there for a reason. What about us when we're in a situation where we don't want to be where we are? In a less than good context, God has good for you to do. There is a right way to serve him in a world filled with wrong. Also, you have come to royal position for such a time as this. Sounds really self-aware. Like, okay, I recognize that in myself. The context is the exact opposite of that. Esther is totally unaware of her situation until Mordecai, her adopted dad, brings it to her attention. I was thinking about, and I'm not, I'm not the first to draw attention to this, but just by way of illustration, people uh, selling their secondhand mirror online, like on eBay or Facebook Marketplace and those sorts of places, and trying to get out of the picture themselves. You know, the, like the guideline is to you're not supposed to photograph yourself when you sell things. And people are notoriously bad at this. I went on eBay um, to have a look, and there's somebody <laughs> just, just trying to take a picture of the mirror and not be in the mirror themselves, you know, and it's an illustration for me of um, it's really hard for us to like not be so in the situation to see the bigger picture and that we need to step back or step to the side to see what's really going on. A couple more for you just because I couldn't resist this, this person there. (laughs) Now, if you look at that, that's that person's toe that's taken that picture. So full marks for effort and everything, but they haven't fully framed the mirror have they? Um, and so they haven't quite achieved, you know, I think that's pretty admirable, but it isn't really going to sell particularly. And, and then some people just forget that they're going to be in the picture <laughs> when they take the picture of the mirror. For us, we're supposed to, when we reflect on what God is saying in any given situation, we are in that situation, but we're supposed to take some heavenly guidance and in a way stand to one side. The only way you can take a picture of a mirror without being in it is to stand to one side of it. Have a look at the whole situation and see, see what's really going on. When we do that, we find that there is a life-saving mission that we are called to. So hard to see that when we're in the middle of something. In church life, it's a busy life. In the rest of your life, it can be a busy life. And so it's hard to step back from the picture. There's always enough stuff to do. There's always enough stuff to discuss in the Bible and in Christianity. There's always enough good news stories happening somewhere, actually, to keep us hopeful. But we might not address the pressing question, which is that there is this life-saving mission that we're called to, that the decision to follow Jesus is a life-and-death decision, and to commit to him is a life long process. So let me take two things that that are key on our radar at the moment. Um, There's our consideration, prayerful consideration of are we called to do something in Bosom and there's Alpha starting for us uh, very soon. We're Alpha Taster on the 24th and the Bosom gatherings. We're just gathering three times this term to prayerfully consider is is God calling us to do something in this. Kind of almost the first Sunday of each month, but we thought this Sunday was a bit too early to start it. So next week, 8th, and then the 6th of October, and then the 3rd 
of November in the village hall there. If we're in the middle of something, it's hard to observe it. Step back from something, and I think it's like this. You can disagree that the best way forward as an evangelistic tool, say, is um, trying to uh, do alpha or bosom. But we should do so from the heart perspective, having stepped to one side, that we are called to this life-saving mission. When we view it with New Testament lenses, we have to let the truth and consequences of the cross shape us. And we find when we do that, that like Esther, we are called to live for something bigger than we would choose for ourselves. It's totally okay to disagree with the idea that Alpha is your best way to introduce your friends and colleagues and family to Jesus. If you are working on your own prayerful strategy of another way to introduce them to Jesus. Otherwise, it's the offer that's on the table. Whilst we prayerfully explore whether God is calling us to try some missional community-type gathering in Bosom, it's fine, absolutely fine, to be hesitant about that or to not be with that if you are throwing your all into some other way of reaching people who do not yet know Jesus. As I say, with New Testament lenses, when we let the truth and consequences of the cross shape us, we find that we're called to live for something bigger than anything we would plan for ourselves. Otherwise, we don't see the bigger picture. We're too busy within it, like people trying to sell mirrors. And all the while, there's the danger, of, like Esther, of missing out on the very thing that I'm here for, that you are here for. Another thing about this phrase, you have come to royal position for such a time as this, it sounds as though it depends on me, that it's all down to me. Actually, it depends on God, and he calls me to play my part. When we look at the phrase, this is the bottom of the verse, you have come to royal position for such a time as this, or such a time as this, is what people say. Let's just add the rest of the context for it. First of all, it's phrased as a question, and it has, and who knows? So some people I really respect, because I'm doing a role for our denomination at the moment this year, and I trust their prayerful discernment, have sent me messages, letters, cards, emails, with the called for such a time as this question. What they're not doing, but I know it's there, is saying, and who knows, it could be you, at the front of it, and adding that, and adding a question mark at the end of it. But that's the context of it. And actually, the wider context is, for if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows? Question mark. Now, it's not quite as straightforward as that. I need to just explain that it's quite tricky to translate that. Um, and so it could be that the bit that we have as a question is a rhetorical question, and the bit that we don't have as a question is a question. In other words, it could read, um, for if you remain silent, will deliverance come from another place? And it could read, um, and who knows, but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this, no question mark. And some of the translations go with that. And actually the rest of the context of Esther shows that she is called to royal position for such a time as this. So it isn't watered down by the fact that there's a question mark, just that it's a little bit more complicated than that. The actual context when you 
unpack it further, proves that it isn't all down to Esther. Esther does her best, and she does her prayerful, careful best. She asks other people to fast and pray, and God acts. You know that bit that I misunderstood where the king asked for chronicles to be read to him in the later chapter, in chapter 6? That happens after the prayer and fasting and at just the right time. Such that when Esther then goes for protection, there's already been a degree of protection and honouring Mordecai, actually, because God is working with and over and above Esther. So it's like this for you and me. The lessons are Esther uses her best strategy for this life-saving operation. Wisdom is needed and used by Esther. She doesn't just blurt out her words. There's timing. There's a banquet, of course, because it's all about feasts, and there's a setting. She gives it her best shot with the most persuasive words, and she plays to her strengths, and God acts with that. And God acting with that means that the rescue happens. That's a valid lesson for us, I think. Lastly, it sounds like if, if it's all this urgent, if it's life-saving, you've been called to such a time as this, then we should hit the ground running. Actually, what Esther does is she hits the ground praying. And she asks other people to pray, and then they devise a plan, and God blesses it. It's divine work over and above our best efforts. As I go around different churches, I talk to people about their front lines, about um, God working over and above, that we should pray about it and that we should be willing to tell other people about things and that God will work with them. And somebody came to me after one of those uh, talks to give me their version of this. They were a boss in a small bit of one company that were to do with uh, attracting sales uh, figures. They were new to this company and new to trying to attract new sales projects. Anyway, they, as a team, the team he was responsible for, they'd had a massive success and got a brand new contract. The way that his company worked was that they could then have a little social. He was given a bit of a budget to take his team out for lunch. So far, he hasn't told his team that he's a Christian. So he decides that this is his moment. He's going to create a meal. He's going to pray about it. And as they're all sitting around the table, he's going to say, look, I'm just getting to know us. Maybe some of you don't know each other really well. Let's all just share one thing about ourselves that we don't know. And there's about eight of them in this team. And this is his moment to share that he is a follower of Jesus, and it's the most important thing in his life. But he lets the others go first. The second person to share, a woman sitting over there, let's say, says... The thing I've never told you is that I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm a Christian. And it's the most important thing in my life. And then one other out of those eight actually also said, and I'm a Christian too. And, and then it comes to him. And now he's in this team. He has prayed, taken his best strategy. He shares that he's a believer too. And you can imagine the dynamic and how that changes the working environment. Our best prayerful efforts but God working over and above all of that. I heard a radio interview this week with the news journalist and reporter George Alagaya. Um, it was a timely interview for him for a number of reasons, and it was a fascinating interview. He's going through his second round of treatment for cancer and was grateful for the backup and support he's been receiving for that. 
But it's also time because his new book, he's just written a thriller, uh, was out last Thursday, uh, based in uh, a setting in South Africa where he was the news reporter during all the Mandela years and all of that. But it's a thriller, it's a fictional story. One of the things um, that he was asked was about the difference between writing and reporting facts as a news reporter in South Africa or as the person who stands and delivers the six o'clock or sits and delivers the six o'clock news standing and delivering and writing truth and standing and delivering or, and writing rather for other people to read fiction, that difference between news and fiction. Um, it's an interesting thing that he was asked and his answer was even more fascinating, I think. It's interesting because Ian's speaking about fake news um, this evening. According to our news sheet, I think you're speaking about fake news. Who knows, Ian? We'll find out later on. I don't know if I can trust our news sheet. We'll find out later. But if you come to the evening, we'll find out if that's true. But his answer was brilliant. What he said was, George Alagaya, when he was a journalist, he was trying and is trying to report truth, the truth of what has happened. And when he's telling a made-up story in a fictional narrative, he's trying to convey truth. And that's what all good fiction does, really, isn't it? It's a made-up story, but there's truth in it about what it is to be human, about life and death, about relationships and connections and identity and more. When we read the book of Esther, this book that over the centuries some Christians have struggled with, particularly in the early church, it's important to remember that we're reading both sorts of truth. We're reading history that has happened, and that account helps us, and we're reading truth about what it is to be human, about who we are, about relationships, about our identity. And my message to us all today is that we are here for a reason. That's the key truth I'm picking up. And that when we look at that context, it is more complicated than we first think. It isn't as straightforward as we first think. It's more messy, and yet it's more for us. You know, there's people who send a card to me and say, I'm here for a reason. I really appreciate that. And, and, and what I take from that is, it's less about me, more about God. It is a life-saving mission. And yet there is a situation where you can do your careful and prayerful best. I take that for me for what I'm doing this year. Actually, the context is more for all of you. Esther isn't called to work in a church or a synagogue or a temple. For royal position is just her job at that moment. She is called to her front line. And she is called to do her prayerful and careful best for such a time as this in that setting. So what would it be like for you and me tomorrow if we pray for such a time as this prayers? If we pray here for a reason prayers? I'm going to invite the band back, but as they're coming up, would you just tell somebody you're sitting with, introduce yourself if you need to, some context of here for a reason for you this week, some place you will be. You don't need to know why you're there. It's just somewhere that you will picture yourself being. Have a chat. <laughs>